Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts that we know about. I am Cameron. I'm Michael. Michael, this month, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things happening. It's the uh, about to be the spooky month. Mm -hmm. um, it uh, There's a, a, a crisp fall apple scent in the air. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you were drinking cider this very moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, it's a 50-50 mix of coffee and apple cider. This is my this is my fall drink. It's called Michael's Fall Drink, actually, in New England. It's really weird. Mm, I thought it was going to be a Michael Palmer. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and so, of course... Uh, <laughs> my Twin know, Peaks you... OC. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, here's Laura Palmer's other cousin, who's a boy. <laughs> Uh, he also has big round glasses the same, but looks very different. Uh -huh. They don't look the same. <laughs> He's best uh, friends with Dale Cooper. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're going to solve the mystery together. Mm -hmm. They're going to know. He's going to say, oh, I know exactly how Annie is. Don't you worry about it, Dale. Uh, I'll get you out of there. Leave that mirror alone. It's, uh, some deep cuts for, for the audience this month. But uh, unrelated to that, uh, or maybe related to that, you know, Twin Peaks is often about the uh, long hangover of techno culture mm -hmm. and uh, its ability to survey the stars. You know, we, we got that a little bit in season three of Twin Peaks. But this month, we're talking about Patrick Krogan's gameplay mode, war, simulation, and techno culture. Um, it's a 2011 book from the University of Minnesota Press. And uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting one. This is a, a big one, I would say, in that kind of universe of books like Games of Empire, which we've already covered on this show, uh, in that it's looking at the relationship between technology and how technology is developed and games and what games inherit from those things, what kind of theoretical issues we can summon up from that. Um, and it's less, it's actually extremely uninterested in doing things like close reading or narrative analysis or anything like that. This is like a big capital T theory book for games, um, and that, that I've always really enjoyed. You had not read this book before, right, Michael? No, no, this was a new one for me and I read it because you were, you were beating the drum for it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm all about it. And this has been on our list, I think, since the very beginning of the show. Yes. Um, you know, this has been been one, and constantly it kind of, kind of comes up, and we say, oh, maybe we should do this, and then we think, um, I think the last couple times it's it's come up for us uh, in relationship to other books that maybe it was a little bit too close to, so we wanted to give a little bit of a time and break between these kinds of things, and uh, now we're just doing it. <laughs> um, I know you looked up some information about Patrick Grogan, Michael, uh, that I didn't talk about. Do you got anything interesting or cool there? Uh, I mean, mostly just that currently, if you want to know what Patrick Krogan is up to, he is the Associate Professor of Digital Cultures at the University of West England, Bristol. Uh, he is, however, I think, pretty sure got his PhD in Australia. He is originally Australian. So he, you know, comes out of kind of the acad like the Australian academic game studies uh, background scene, uh, however you want to, to think of like that cohort or uh, contingent of scholars. Um, and a lot of his current research, actually, I was, you know, looking to see kind of if he'd continued more with games uh, as kind of, you know, his topic. And really, no. 
his most recent research seems to largely be about like AI and automation. So he's kind of taken the technoculture angle from this project, I think, and maybe pursued that more uh, rather than games specifically, um, which I think makes sense because in this book, games are interesting and worth talking about for Krogan, but they are very much a kind of uh, means to an end, right? Games are a platform for poking at something much, much bigger than games as Krogan understands it. Yeah, absolutely. Games here are a symptom of another thing, you mm-hmm. know, They and, and specifically they're the entertainment culture symptom of um you know what's going on in what what he calls technoculture um or what he adopts as the term of uh technoculture uh i don't know i mean do we want to just dive right into it or do you have like big thoughts here at the top um i because i know that when we had a little bit of uh preliminary conversations about this you were like dang this is a book Mm -hmm. uh so that was specifically in response to uh how i had seen this book often cited uh, and I'll say that at the beginning, if if this is a book that you've heard of that you haven't read um, and you want to know kind of what its deal is and, and what it is, generally speaking, that you might get out of it. Uh, when I saw this book cited, uh, usually it was kind of like in a list of things like Games of Empire, where uh, someone would be making an argument and want to gesture at, uh, let's say, you know, like the ways that uh, uh, the, you know, video game technology and like military technology intertwine or overlap, uh, which is a thing that is written about by multiple people. Um, and it was, you know, it's kind of it shows up as a citation, right? It is a, it's a mm-hmm. book about that. Uh, and it is it absolutely is. Uh, but one of the things that makes, I think, this book very different from something like Games of Empire uh, is that, as as you said, this is a, a theory book, right? This is a book that is not just going to say that, you know, hey, isn't it kind of, you know, weird and interesting and worth talking about that uh, computer technology uh, is both, you know, kind of military, but also entertainment, and that there's like some sort of weird enjambment happening between these two distinct fields of social life. Uh, no, this book's overall approach really is trying to get at uh, what Krogan sees as a kind of core problem in the very possibility of the existence of computer games. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not so much that uh, there is a you know strand of military uh, technology, you know, innovation, uh, development, uh, uh, you know, dissemination, and things like that. And then there's also kind of like this popular culture thing going on where people are using computers to make uh, fun games, which, for instance, is an ex- uh, is kind of an argument that gets made in uh, Games of Empire, right? That there is a way in which games. Uh, on computers come about because the programmers on these military machines in kind of the mid-century and just after, you know, in the post-war period are kind of just screwing around, right? These machines are supposed to be uh, doing all of these logistics functions, but then the programmers are like, hey, maybe we could like have a, you know, fun little like space sim or something on here too. Um, And what Krogan's basic move is, is to actually step back from that and think about what is the implication of the fact that uh, 
for video games to exist at all as an entertainment form, uh, we had to have, you know, technological militarization in, in sort of the way that we did and at the scale that we have. And what does it mean that this has continued to happen, that these two things, these these fields that we often approach as sort of distinct, um, are in fact constantly feeding back into one another and, and uh, resulting in kind of this, um, you know, weird uh, dynamic of uh, escalation and sort of further, uh, uh, I guess, like permeation of our various cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, if if we're thinking about kind of, you know, two different focal links almost, right? I mean, that that is the the zoomed in, uh, you know, like this is what the, the book is about, right? And then it has like as its method, you know. If we, so the other focal link, maybe if we if we back up just a little bit, um, much blurrier, mm-hmm. um, you know, it has its method here, which is pretty different from the vast majority of what we have read. I mean, this is kind of like when we say it's a theory book, right? Uh, we mean that it is engaging with a lot of the authors and forms of argumentation that appear after the birth of you know capital T theory in literary and media studies and film studies. In the 1970s is when it becomes pretty popular in the United States, and by that uh, we mean, you know, that they uh, that people are looking to philosophers, mm-hmm. and they are looking to the way that philosophers are considering the world in front of them, and then they are using that to kind of speak to material issues in the world, right? So, um, you know, when you read something about video games, and Derrida shows up more than uh, you know any other ga- any game studies scholars you know what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a different thing. And so the reason I say that is that there are some key names, um, some of whom we'll get maybe more into specifics of here, but but some some key names of, of the theorists that Krogan is working with uh, or who Krogan is working with um, that show up here quite a lot. So um, the primary one is uh, Paolo Virilio. Uh, mm-hmm. Virilio writes about uh, the development of... Um, of technology after 1945, essentially. Virilio's big uh, philosophical project was understanding how things, um, how uh, technological modes in modernization in a broad sense, like capital M modernity, modernization, how it captures human life and accelerates it toward ends that are inhuman in some ways. So, um, uh, you know, uh, for Virilio, the big image uh, for him uh, in a book like um, Speed and Politics, is going to be the speed from which uh, someone can make a decision to launch a nuclear weapon and then the nuclear weapon leaving the silo. Mm-hmm. You know, he is interesting. How has um, capitalism and how has uh, contemporary culture morphed so much to provide an entire logistical imagination that is only about speeding up that process. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that intensification of speed uh, happens across all other forms too. So that's happening economically, that's happening um, uh, uh, educationally, all these different things. Mm-hmm. So, so really, I was really, really important here. Um, specifically that kind of question of logistics. Bernard Stiegler shows up quite often. Bernard Stiegler um, is most best known maybe for, uh, what, Technics in Time is th- the name of the, those two books? I think so, yes. Uh, Acting Out is his other big famous book. Um, but what Krogan is really interested in Stiegler here for is the um, this concept of technoculture, essentially, and technics specifically, which is um, Stiegler's way of explaining the way, again, that modernity is kind of developed. 
um, by uh, grabbing, again, very similar to Virilio, grabbing human life and then uh, extending it technologically and, in fact, taking um, kind of, quote-unquote, natural human life and subordinating it to technological development. That's a very extreme gloss. Technics in Time is a, a duology of, like, 400-page books. Yeah, that's, it's a, <laughs> there's long books. <laughs> yeah, there's way more going on there, and it's been probably 10 years, maybe even 15 years since I read those books. No, 10 years since I read those books. I had an advisor uh, when I was an undergrad who was a huge Siegler fan. Um, and uh, he was also into Bataille. And I uh, <laughs> took the Bataille and I went with that direction and read the Stiegler um, at the time, but have not really revisited it uh, super heavily since then. Um, and so those those are two kind of uh, really important names for like the critical things that are happening in this book. Uh, Derrida shows up quite often too, but kind of in that Derridian fashion of like uh, getting cited to talk about indeterminacies for the most part mm-hmm. and aporias and things like that. That'll, that'll come up. Um, uh, later, uh, Heidegger shows up very briefly in a way that I don't find particularly interesting in this book, just to be honest. And then some, oh, and, uh, Jean Baudrillard is the other Mm -hmm. one, um, who kind of comes up, uh, in order to talk about, again, accelerations of capital. So, uh, you know, Krogan is working with a, a capital T theory and philosophy cohort who were all interested in the ways that the 20th century, you know, and post-war 20th century, how it warped humanity into a different kind of shape because, top level, this is what the argument, as Michael, as you were saying before, this is what the book is about, right? Mm-hmm. How has uh, computation um, and how has computability and the maneuver toward kind of techno-scientific life, how has it altered the human in such a way that... Um, that we might not be able to walk it back. I mean, I think that's that's kind of a, a concern here. You'll also notice that I did not mention any women mm-hmm. <laughs> or non-white dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this is the other pitfall, I think, of the capital T theory book, is that while there are plenty of, of women uh, that you could cite in that tradition, um, you know, uh, there's a world in which we could imagine a uh, Lusa Rigore showing up here um, who wrote several books on on this um, and wrote several books working through, you know, authors like Heidegger to talk about the transformation of of the human. Um, that doesn't happen here. And I think that there is a, and this is not a direct criticism of Krogan. This is a criticism of the kind of capital T theory mode. It is largely a tradition of white European dudes mm-hmm. um, and, and people constantly elaborating their thought without very much consideration of, of any of those um, identity realities to them and and then this is something that we'll get to in the book by only looking to these figures and thinking through what they're looking for i think you miss certain things about the history of these transformations in the past such as um if uh if logistics have transformed human life it seems very and and i understand that krogan is interested in post 45 that makes a lot of sense but uh there are several other moments say uh, around the birth of modernity like uh, the uh, solidification of chattel slavery that are entirely about the logistification of human life. To, mm-hmm. You know, one of the most horrifying things that humans have ever done. These other maneuvers that don't directly deal with computation, but which, if, if you're looking at, you know, people who are theorizing them, are absolutely important, those don't, don't, don't show up here. And of course, it's because he's interested in kind of post-bomb, post-1945. I totally get why that's happening, but I think both you and I, Michael, uh, have some big questions for this book about uh, why um, log- logistics and why uh, technoculture matters at a certain point and why it doesn't matter at other points. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's just a little bit of a, a preview for the thing. But we could dive right into it. Sorry, I've been talking for forever, but I felt like that was a, a, a an important bit of information to kind of lay out here about the method and what the method gets you and maybe what it, what it uh, encourages you to miss. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I think what you've done really is you've built us a nice platform for thinking about what this book is doing generally, as well as kind of, you know, where where you might want to question it or expand on some of the work that it's done. Uh, and this ties into something we were talking about just before we started recording, uh, which is that when we want to start talking about this book, if we're going to talk about it, um, and in fact, maybe if you're going to read it, it might be good to start at the end in the is it the mm -hmm. final chapter or the conclusion mm -hmm. Conclu the conclusion although yeah. it is much longer than i think we would think a normal conclusion is it's a full chapter i was gonna say that conclu conclusions often aren't that that's what's confusing about it a little bit is that uh, conclusions in academic books tend to be like here are my four to five pages on like sort of summing up my thoughts and kind of gesturing at the work that I think needs to be done moving forward. Uh, but the conclusion to this book is kind of interesting because it really like is where the whole argument gets solidified and kind of outlined in a way that uh, it is sort of implicit in all of the other chapters. Like uh, it, how this book sort of is structured is that all of these chapters are kind of setting up a uh, historical, con like a mixture of historical context and kind of like a theoretical approach. Like, here's a thing, here's a thing, here's a thing, here's a thing. You put all of these together, and in the conclusion, you have what has been the argument of this book, right? We've, we've mm -hmm. seen it in kind of like slivers, and then the conclusion locks them all together into kind of like the big overarching claim. Um which is normally the sort of thing that happens like in a in, in an introduction. Uh, but yeah, just here the, the structure just feels kind of weirdly reversed. Yeah, and I I I, I don't know what Krogan's background is in the sense of like I, I did you did you see what Krogan's degree was in? Uh no, I didn't. I don't think it mentioned on the, the faculty page. Mm -hmm. I, the, the only reason I ask, uh, I didn't look it up either, but the only reason I ask is this is sometimes how like a certain brand of continental philosophy book is written. So I'm thinking here uh, of books like uh, Ray Brassier's Nihil Unbound, right, which is like looking at several philosophers uh, in its main chapters. And then at the end also comes together for this like conclusion or final chapter that really is just saying, you know, I told you all this other stuff so I could tell you this one thing. And so, you know, I I encounter this enough in other philosophy books that maybe this is just kind of a uh, genre expectation in some ways for whatever field that Krogan is coming out of, which might have been philosophy, I don't know, or kind of a more philosophically inflected media studies degree. Um, but uh, but in, in any case, yes, you're 100% right <laughs> that, um, you know, this is the the conclusion, I think, should be read first. And I think a lot of this should have just been in the introduction. But do you do you want to you want to lay this out for us? Uh, sure. <clears throat> so the conclusion is called the challenge of simulation. So if you want kind of like the soundbite version, what is the thing that uh, like what is the lens or sort of like what is the vocabulary by which this book uh, apprehends both, you know, computer games and also all of the other stuff that it wants to talk about. It's simulation. So we're going to talk about things, you know, like flight sims or, uh, you know, military projections, right? Like literally the running of simulations. Uh, and that is how these things get get combined. And for Krogan, 
simulation is a challenge, um, but also not quite the challenge that game studies has necessarily uh, kind of figured it as being. Uh, we begin with uh, describing uh, UAVs, what is uh, unmanned aircraft vehicles? Is that what that stands for? Mm -hmm. yep. What's weird, so this is a book from 2011, and it's weird to note this kind of drift, right? Today we just call these drones. Mm -hmm. uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. Okay, unmanned um, aerial vehicles. So, so uh, the the drone or the UAV is a great test case for talking about the things that Krogan wants to get at here, uh, because the example that Krogan begins with is that, okay, so we have these UAVs, right? Um, mm -hmm. They uh, on they do one thing, which is that they breach a divide between uh, the simulation of a thing and the execution of it. What this means is that the experience of operating a UAV or operating a drone uh, is essentially the exact same thing as playing a flight sim. It's just a flight sim that when, you know, you press fire, something somewhere in the world is actually firing. Uh, so uh, there is a, a kind of weird fungibility that is being established between like a uh, interactive or sort of playable representation of a space and then the effects that might be enacted on an actual space in the real world. Uh, the other thing that Krogan points out then also in, in I, there are like news articles right at the time from like the late uh, 2000s, early 2010s that are being cited here where people are discovering that these uh, drone uh, piloting programs are using like standard Xbox controllers. And there's a kind of uh, sense that uh, that Krogan is pulling out of kind of like games press uh, at this time. That's kind of like, oh, the military is like suborning gaming, right? They're, they're taking kind of this unconnected or sort of distinct social, social field and they are, you know, uh, deviously or sort of insidiously allowing uh actual kind of like military operations to creep into uh the, the the space of like popular playful gaming uh and what krogan does is again you know kind of steps back and is like hey you want to know who invented the flight sim it was the military like the the flight sim was a military application that then got repackaged as kind of a, a commercial, uh, you know, entertainment pastime. And so in this weird way, uh, like, you know, the military using Xbox controllers is just kind of like chickens coming home to roost, uh, mm -hmm. like because the Xbox controller would not exist without kind of all of this prior military development. Um and so to, to get back then at this issue of, uh, you know, the, the simulation execution divide or what is sort of most important, I think, for the way that Krogan is articulating this argument is what is the difference between simulation and uh, what we might, for lack of a better phrase, call like traditional representation? Uh, so something like, you know, cinema or image or, or uh, literature or something like that, uh, because simulations, you know, are extended in time. Uh, they're sort of articulable or like multi-form uh, and they seem to simulations that is seem to work or capable of they seem to be capable of working on the real right the sort of world outside like the specific representation or simulation in ways that previous forms have not so this is page 162 
The complication of the relation between simulation and the real needs to be understood not as a radically new development through which a new representational and interactive media form suddenly uproots the grounds of the real. Instead, the novelty of the contemporary era of simulation should be approached as a shift in the prevailing relations between mnemotechnical forms and the experience that they condition by selectively reproducing the archive of its past occurrence and providing a basis for anticipating its future course. Uh, the thinker, particularly the game studies thinker that Krogan is uh, talking about, about or to here, who shows up by name, just not in this point, is Gonzalo Frasca, uh, who has, uh, a, appears to be like at least one big article, uh, and maybe a couple of others, where the claim is made uh, by Frasca that simulation is like the form of the future, or, you know, like the representational form of the future, the figure of the future, um, kind of a, a it's not at all the same sort of argument, but kind of a ludic century kind of thing, right? Like in mm -hmm. in the past, or not in the past, well, I guess it is the past, but like, you know, in, in the previous century, we were all about the moving images in cinema or on television. And now in the next coming hundred years or whatever, we're all going to be about these interactive simulations. Um, there's more to Frasca than that, and we'll get into it. But uh, what Krogan is doing here is trying to point out, uh, you know, in distinction to Frasca, that who, by saying simulation is, you know, the form of the future, is sort of implicitly consigning all other representational modes to kind of the dustbin of history. Uh, and, and Krogan is saying, like, no, actually, uh, simulations have their ground in representational forms like narrative. Uh, and they operate like narrative two operates toward the future, uh, just not in quite the same way that simulation can or does, or rather maybe sometimes the way that simulation can make us think that it does, because this is the other thing about simulation that's really important for Krogan, uh, page 164. Uh, questions of truthfulness, legitimacy, and significance posed by an accredited simulation can only concern the fitness of the simulation, quote, for a specified purpose, revolving around study of a defined, uh, quote-unquote, problem space within the, quote-unquote, real world. Uh, so what Krogan is trying to get at there is that uh, whereas, say, for like a representation in cinema or for a still image, right, a drawing or a painting or something, um, you can look at the representation and then sort of like critically interrogate it as uh, you know, on the grounds of, say, verisimilitude or something like that. You know, does this picture of a, of a shark really look a whole lot like a shark or, or whatever? Um, how are different types of people being represented? What are sort of the implicit arguments being generated by, uh, you know, this film or whatever? In distinction to that, uh, the thing about simulations is that uh, they sort of set boundaries on what they are going to represent and then ask you to judge them only within those boundaries. Uh, the, the, the simulation is good at, uh, for Krogan, is good at getting you to not ask for more of it. It's good at getting you to think like the simulation, thinking in terms of, like, what does it take as its first principles? Uh, because simulations uh, sort of instill kind of, I think he calls this, not maybe in this chapter, but in the previous one, something called, uh, like, the, the will to mastery. 
Uh, so the, the first thing we got to do with a simulation, right, is figure out how it works and like get all of its pieces in order. And, and we know how these things are fitting together. What are what what are its logics? Uh, what are all maybe the little secrets or, uh, you know, technical things that we need to know about it? Uh, and that in some ways can displace us uh, critically interrogating. Well, like, well, wait, what are what are the assumptions that this thing is making? Um, if, if if that sounds about right to you, Cameron. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, simulations are a way of thinking the world that we are asked to inhabit when we're playing um, or, you know, engaging with them, period. And so uh, you're not you're you are not yourself. um uh, engaging with a representation, right? You you are within a system that tells you how representations work and what representations are proper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean proper in that kind of philosophical sense, you know, appropriate to um, or, or even valid within uh, a given system, um, which is uh, totalizing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is what Krogan is getting to, that, that or this is why this matters so much in the conclusion is that the simulation in and of itself um, if it operates the way that we all, f- you know, assume that it does, and especially borrowing from from Frasca or or uh, overcoming Frasca in some ways here, um, then uh, then it becomes very difficult to, ex- for example, to escape um, uh, technoculture, right, and escape a um, war based mastery based system that encourages us all to think of ourselves as individual acting agents in competition or, or uh, combat with other individuals right and that's the whole the the whole argument of this book essentially uh nailed down into a very clear um uh, i mean languid <laughs> both of our explanations but uh, a very clear kind of solidification which is that simulation doesn't do anything other than provide you with a uh, way of representing the world in miniature but that way of representing the world in miniature in fact enfolds the whole world within it we live within technoculture. Simulation is a symptom of technoculture, but simulation is also the way that we think about the world around us. The whole world has been, after 1945, after the kind of emergence of mass computation um, by the Western powers, right, imperial powers, the, the whole world has been consumed within these sets of logics of uh, technics. And if that's the case, then the, you know, what, what matters is that simulation is appearing and is supplanting other forms and we can most easily apprehend like the way the world is working if we're looking at the way that these techno forms are are grabbing onto the world around them. Um, and so, you know, my immediately my bristle here, my bristle with this whole book is that these things preexisted. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, we did not need computation to have uh, models of the world that were representations of that world and th- that did not uh, actually deal with that world and yet had an immense power. So, um, like, you know, what I was talking about before, something like chattel slavery. You know, I, I was just teaching uh, Jennifer Morgan's Laboring Women, which has a, a really elaborate chapter about how uh, chattel slavery is only really possible in its emergence or, or, or part of what gives it uh, the capability to exist and be... Um, um, uh, expansive as a system is the extreme amount of essentially PR uh, material that's being produced about it and being produced about the quote-unquote African body. Mm-hmm. And so there are huge numbers of um, European colonizers who end up living in the Caribbean uh, or uh, the southern United States or in parts of South America 
you know, uh, Brazil now, where their entire conception, and of course, people back home in Europe who who are uh, who are uh, participants in this economy, but not directly related to it, um, the, the their entire image is entirely determined by um, the illustrations and writings about these human beings, and so it, you need a complex ideological model to say, here's how the world is, here's the reality of things, and repeating that over and over in order to give the kind of mental ground that makes people just assume that this is okay. You know, that that's, uh, enslavement is perfectly fine. And that's something that my students and I were really kind of working ar- on is that the reason that Jennifer Morgan starts there as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, the early moments of capture or whatever of uh, enslavement is that the mental model, the, the, the how the world is thought is just as critical as the movement of money or the movement of human bodies because it allows for all those other things to, to make sense to people. Um, and to uh, you know, reground the beliefs they have about the world—the racist and violent and oppressive um, and nightmarish beliefs they have about the world. So, you know, uh, or, or you know, we can look at something like any of Michel Foucault's work, um, <laughs> and uh, around like you know the kind of diagrammatics that generate the conditions of the world, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, the asylum as a thing is the social. And it, it's a new model of the social, mm-hmm. and it and it brings people into it, and it determines where they can exist in the world and how they can think how they exist. Right? That sounds a lot like what Krogan is talking about with simulation. And so, my, my where I'm bristling with with this book for the most part across the board is that I I, I buy I think the analysis for the most part, but I'm not particularly sold that the that the mechanics that make this possible need computation to work you know it, it in in the heart of of um the mental models that make this a way of controlling human life and augmenting human life under capitalism and technoculture i it's not particularly unique and to be clear krogan would say that too right mm-hmm. in the bit that you read right you know it's he says it's a new mimeotechnical form you know it's not uh uh it's supplanting earlier forms, but it is not qualitatively uniquely different from the way that they were operating. And that comes very late in the in the book. Um, he also says a few times, right, especially when he's citing Bernard Stiegler, that or Stiegler that uh, you know Stiegler says that technics are a part of human beings all the way back to the emergence of the human being as a species. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that this is what culture is, and so there are some escape valves for what I'm saying and what Krogan is saying to coexist with one another. But the vast majority of words in this book are dedicated <laughs> to something that feels a little bit different than uh, what those escape valves might suggest. So. That, that's that was sitting in my head the whole time I'm reading this book, you know, uh, like I agree with this and yet and maybe that's OK. I mean, maybe that's what makes for a, a, a good book to engage with. Um, but so if you heard any of the things we've talked about so far and you were thinking, eh, I don't know, I think that there are um, I have similar hesitations. And I think that, Michael, you probably do, too, since that uh, so much of of uh, your uh, life on the show is spent saying yeah, that's interesting about games, but have you heard about the theater? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I mean, Krogan, to to his credit, brings in quite a bit of theater by the end. In fact, like yeah. one of the things he does uh, that I appreciate very much is that uh, he does take Gonzalo Frasca uh, in, in the idea that, you know, simulation is the form of the future. Uh, 
and, and Frasca himself is is like basing a lot of his claims in kind of uh, dramaturgical theory, particularly, mm -hmm. um, you know, the the ideas of uh, uh, Augusto Boal. Uh, but, uh, you know, Crokin is taking a simulation and simulation as Frasca theorizes it. And he is making that room for being like, listen, like narrative is still at work here in some way right this this form that uh is supposed to be kind of like older and stuck in the past uh actually has its own kind of future oriented modality that has been operant for forever uh and mm -hmm. we can't disentangle that from how simulation works um but also you know exactly what you're saying um there is uh, uh because this book is focused on like post-45, uh, you know, post-bomb, uh, like, Cold War developments in technology, uh, because it is sort of so committed to looking at how these things in particular have shifted the way that this kind of, like, cultural tendency has been flowing, um, what it ends up doing is, you know, kind of focusing on that without really noticing like, oh, this was actually activating or maybe reappropriating uh, strands of cultural development and, and technocultural production uh, that have longer tails. Mm -hmm. Do we want to kind of move through the chapters here? Uh, yeah, sure. I think, I think uh, hopefully we can do this. In, in fairly short order, we have an introduction, uh, which is called War Technology and Simulation. Uh, and this is like the, these three terms are kind of Krogan's key terms uh, that we mm -hmm. can lay out here. Uh, war. Uh, this is the other thing, right, is that like uh, the other argument Krogan is making kind of, you know, uh, bouncing off Virilio here. Um, or, you know, jumping off of him as it's kind of a platform, is that contemporary war, like post-45, war as a practice has been changed fundamentally because of, you know, the, the possibility of mutually assured destruction, but also the, the increase of, like, rapid communications networks and, and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. These things are all... Uh, made possible by developments in technology uh, and then simulation kind of the third term is the thing that a lot of military technology at, at first at least is attempting to do uh, the the kind of historical moment that we begin with post 45 and kind of the beginning of the cold war is this new age of logistics where uh, war, rather than being as it uh, you might might have been previously, uh, as kind of this thing that it has a a, a long-ish buildup of like political and diplomatic maneuvering, uh, you know, sort of communication between various figures of state, diplomats, diplomats, and things like that, um, before the you know resolution of a conflict or the outbreak of actual you know physical conflict. Uh, Whereas that might have been the way in the past, once you have an atom bomb, uh, you don't have time for all of the bickering, uh, or or you may not, right? Because, uh, again, per Virilio, uh, it is effortless for a button to be pressed and a nuke to be launched. And so, so much of the military kind of technological complex shifts into this mode where uh, we're we're designing programs and building machines that are about calculating probabilities or eventualities. You know, if this happens, then what can we do? How rapidly can we respond to this type of threat? Uh, 
how quickly can we get people on the ground? How people can we how quickly can we move people from this place to that place or these supplies and that sort of thing? So we have war technology and simulation, right? All of that stuff I was just describing. Like, how do we do that? How quickly can we respond? That is sort of the ostensible function of simulation to let us calculate these things and then make decisions informed by them. Uh, the problem then uh, for for Krogan and and you know kind of people generally from Krogan's perspective is that to what degree does that simulation kind of just like actually lead to the further fraying of a uh, sort of non non technological or you know to use Aurelio's term kind of like non dramological relationships right uh, in what mm-hmm. way does constantly preparing for like the worst possible conflict actually just kind of maybe continually increase our chances for having the worst kind of possible conflict to happen. Mhm. And that's happening everywhere. Yes. Right. Uh, so you know, it's not uh the kind of test case for it and obviously the most like um uh, destructive case for it is happening in um a military context here, right? The idea of of uh, the launch of the weapon mm-hmm. in some general sense, but because that is accelerating, everything else has to accelerate too. Uh, you know, it's the it's the determinant or or like the cause of all of the rest of acceleration to happen. Right, uh, everyone has to be ready. Uh, the market has to be able to adjust mm-hmm. uh, to at the same amount of time. Right, and so um, the, the you know it's almost like we've got a like. Uh, I don't know, you know, this nuclear missile, the way I imagine it, it's like this nuclear missile, like flying forward in time, right? And everything is kind of caught up in the in the air displacement, mm-hmm. right? Being dragged along with it, uh, the rest of society. Um, and so like everything kind of takes on this um, dramological um, uh, quality to it. Um, that, you know, that with it, dramology is not happening only in one sense, right? This this movement towards speed or movement toward the race. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's everything all at one time. Um, so, you, you know, and that's partially why this kind of kernel here is what gets Krogan into all of these other things, too, which is to say that, like, um, you if we talk about it in this arena, we can't pretend like it's not happening in our entertainment or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Because because everything is happening all at once. Um, there There is no uh, non totalized part of human capitalist experience you know there's no segment of the market that is not affected there's also i would say kind of an is this where you pointed out in your notes i think there's a little bit of an issue here uh with the way that these three things get uh positioned and intertwined because they are intertwined right straight up this is Mm -hmm. again kind of like one of krogan's uh sort of key points is that the way that technology develops in the world is both a consequence of um but also a sort of uh spur to how war develops and changes conceptually in the world and also along with this you know this this is determining how simulation is being developed or thought as an idea or implemented as a practice so uh, all of these three things are simultaneously like coexisting together but also all dependent on one another and sort of key uh all Mm -hmm. reinforcing one another right they all Mm -hmm. lock together in uh frankly a very lacanian way uh (gasps) in in in, you know uh, think of lacan as uh the because everyone who listens to this knows and loves lacan i know that's why you're here um i had a huge Mm -hmm. lacan fan base and they all followed me to podcasting uh Mm -hmm. 
but it's it's the uh, the Boromian knot, right, of the symbolic, the imaginary, and the real, and these three things lock together, and that's how you generate your subject in the world. Uh, and you can leverage the same critique of the Boromian knot that you can leverage about this war technology simulation triad, uh, which is to say that it is totalizing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. There is no possible escape. And maybe this is actually a good place to kind of, uh, unless you have anything else to say about this introduction, which I think we've laid out pretty well, uh, we can kind of move into the first chapter. Absolutely. Um, because that, so totalizing, you know, uh, as you're saying, Michael, in the sense that there is no possible escape from it. You know, these things are all, no matter where you turn, you are running into the logics of simulation. You are running into, um, uh, you know, uh, technologies in framement, you know, to use some Heideggerianism, right? The, the grabbing of uh, all of existence by, you know, a technological um, way of viewing the world. Um, and, uh, you know, the, and within the context of kind of eternal war, um, you know, the, the always necessary definition of the enemy. Mm-hmm. And he locates this, Krogan locates the, some of the origination of this within uh, Norbert Weiner's development of um, cybernetics. Mm-hmm. Um, so Norbert Weiner, in during World War II, is trying to figure out how to create a, a kind of like proto-computational, maybe it is computational, I guess, I, I don't really know, a... Um, an assistive anti-aircraft weapon that would allow you to compensate for, you know, misaiming and things like that. So the idea is that, you know, you would be able to aim and it would be able to execute some mathematical processes um, and then move some servos and things like that in order to compensate for, for user error, you know, to make shooting down airplanes easier. And so um, Krogan calls this literally, and you know, what, you bringing up Lacan is why I'm bringing this up. He calls this the later in the book, not here, weirdly enough, but later he calls this the primal scene uh-huh. of simulation, <laughs> um, which is to say, this is the originating incident. This is the the moment in which um, human life begins to be eaten by this triad of technology, war, and simulation. Um, because the moment that Weiner decides that the human can be better augmented and can better do war through uh, uh, you know this this co- this combination of of human um, ingenuity, existence, operation, and technology, the moment that that becomes like oh okay yeah that would be a really good idea, uh, that is like the beginning of the end because it becomes combined with um, nascent computation and, and moving into. Uh, computation in the post-war period and there's a huge amount of investment that that is in it and out of that investment out of the idea that the human and that the the compute the human and the computer can be work better for the world together it is the massive investment into that that allows video games to exist Mm -hmm. and so he calls these homologies between games and war technology they operate and they think and they uh ask ask us to do similar things all together and so, so yeah, I mean, you know, the, the pulling on Lacan here, I think, is appropriate because all of that is kind of in the background floating for Krogan that it, it is a system that undergirds, you know, this, this triad of things running together in the same way that Lacan's explanation, you know, the, the psychoanalytic explanation, it is no matter what you say about the world, underneath it are 
these three terms kind of operating in tandem with one another, everything can be explained through them because they are uh, un universal to the human, right? Mm -hmm. Technology, war, and simulation operate the same way. They're, no matter what we look at, Undertale, other games. I'm right? under, I was thinking, uh, uh, I've been playing a lot of Story of Seasons, Friends of Mineral Town, uh, mm -hmm. and frankly, right, Patrick Krogan is all over that game, right? That's a cute little slice-of-life farming sim, but the keyword there mm -hmm. is sim, and by being a simulation, uh, you can pull stuff right out of this and see like the second that I was uh pulling I realized I was pulling up my map of my farm to figure out where my horse was because I have a map in my like my farmer right my little my cute mm -hmm. little anime farmer has a map that he can unfold and it will show me in real time where my horse is like running around <laughs> on my giant plot of land it's like oh okay yeah right here's here's Norbert Weiner right like uh I, I it's it's my race Radar of my farm and I can locate wherever I like not just my horse right all of my animals are marked on this map as if they have like GPS things like you know shot into mm -hmm. them yeah the full augmentation of the human there right and obviously there's a representation of a human but the similar idea right that that one you and the map are the same mm -hmm. you know and computation allows for the simulation of that but in much the same way that I can pull out my phone and tell you a lot about a lot of the things in my local existence as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, that and and that is part of the assumptions I move through the day with um, at this point in time. But so yeah, so th this is kind of what's going on here, right? And as you say, you know, you can see it in Friends of Mineral Town. You can see Krogan's system operating here in Friends of Mineral Town. But precisely because it's such a wide and encompassing system, right? Like, if you say, I have, here, I've got three terms. They tell you everything about everything in modern life. And I'm going to define them so widely that they will tell you everything about all of modern life. Then, you know, it's a little bit of uh, when you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Mm -hmm. These are really big and wide categories that I think that we could get a little bit more... Um, I don't, I don't know detail on or, or, um, specific readings on, I think something that's interesting about Patrick Krogan that you were noting at the beginning of this episode is that this is often cited as a book that says a certain type of thing about simulation. I don't think I've ever read anyone doing kind of close readings of this book or using this book specifically as its method for grabbing onto something else and explaining it. Um, I do a little bit of that in my book because we roughly have similar interests here. Um, but, uh, I, I don't, um. I haven't seen anyone else do it, but, you know, and this is partially, I think, what you were referring to my notes earlier, right, that there are authors who have told us already that we've read on the show that this is maybe insufficient for, like, understanding the world. And I'm thinking here of someone like Christopher Patterson, mm -hmm. um, where the on the ground, so for, I'm thinking of Patterson's um, discussion of Overwatch mm -hmm. in that show, right, or, or in that, that book, where um, Overwatch is 100% doing all these things, right? Like, it is... It is quite literally the simulation of war. It is asking you to get better at targeting. It is asking you to do all the, you know, uh, the the first person shooteriness of that game is just uh, Norbert Weiner's AA gun, but warped through 80 years of technological change and development and entertainmentified. Um, and the way it's asking you to interact with human beings um, in that game is 100% within this triad of of Krogan's terms. However, right, Patterson also is saying that there's all this other stuff that's happening, right? Uh, both a neurotics and a transculturation and a development of the of the human being 
that are not reducible to those three things in that triad. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Patterson's not directly referring to this book, but that, but this is broadly the type of argument that Patterson is kind of uh, operating against and critiquing. So I, I think that's the thing that's worth keeping in mind is that totalizing systems don't really have any room in them for how actual human beings do things. And if you have any kind of belief that is not purely nihilistic about the ability to interrupt these things or the ability to move beyond them, then you actually have to pay attention to the practices that people human that people and, and human beings have, uh, even when they're operating within something totalizing. Um, I think Krogan makes a really kind of like, um, I don't know, effortless gesture toward this at the end of the book, mm-hmm. where, where he's like, he literally devotes two paragraphs. He's like, Ian Bogos has said, here's some ways you might be able to get around that with simulations. And uh, Mary Flanagan says there's like a whole bunch of good ways to do it uh, as well. So hopefully humans can get out from under this. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it, it very much feels like a peer review comment of like, hey, you've created like a pure nihilism of technology um, and, and pure technological determinism. What do you have to say about that? And he gives us a little bit of it. But there's no interest in that other than that in this book. And I got to put my cards on the table, too. I'm a technological determinist in this way, too. I'm a little bit less pessimistic about it. But I definitely think that that simulations and rules and the way that games operate transform you as a human being. They do stuff to you. But I think I have a different imagination of what it does to you than than this does. And uh, again, you know, this is something I've written about a bunch of times. And, and I've got more work coming out about it. This is just a core claim of all of game studies. At the heart of so much of game studies is the idea that the things you do, the things you engage with in the world are transforming you in some way. Um, uh, That is a fundamental claim about media going all the way back to Plato. Mm -hmm. Like this is not uh, some unique argument to game studies. But the question is, how does it do it? And what does it do? You know, what are the degrees to which you do it? Mm Um, something like the video game violence debates are the thing that takes it so far ahead, right? Playing first-person shooters makes you someone who wants to shoot other human beings. That is probably not true, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, But certainly playing those games does not do anything to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have things like memory or reflexes (laughs) or, or the ability to get better at a game, right? If you can get better at Overwatch, that means you can get better at systems of targeting and identifying enemies and shooting and clicking with them, right? Uh, this is what makes drone operation possible in a general sense. So in that wide uh, spectrum of it does something and we don't know what it is versus it does something and we know exactly what it is, um, I think you know everyone's kind of in the middle of there somewhere. But that's deterministic to, in its big, long construction of that spectrum, that it is doing something. Anyway, that's me going off on a long tangent. Um, for the most part, this first chapter is just kind of running through those quote-unquote homologies and looking at things like the development of SimNet, which is a a kind of uh, network simulation capability um, that Krogan says ultimately pays off in things like EverQuest or World of Warcraft. The idea that you can have multiple clients who are all uh, operating through a single server that allows them to interact with each other in the same digital space. Um, he talks a lot about Sage, the semi-automated ground environment, which is uh, the the U.S. Uh, military system for monitor monitoring the skies, essentially mm-hmm. for you know what what's going to happen uh, if bombers show up, for example. And so the the technical complexity of that is what boosts the number of computer programmers in the world. We have to produce people who can work with uh, systems in order to create this vast decentralized system of monitoring. 
um, that by the time it is deployed is actually pointless because ICBMs are developed in that point and they're not detectable by these same systems. Mm -hmm. So, oh well. (laughs) And all of that money gets, uh, and all of that effort gets diverted into a thousand other different things, one of which is the entertainment complex. Yes. The military entertainment, the mech, as we've run into a few times. Um, Something that is notable to me here, Michael, is uh, our good friend Mackenzie Wark, she does not show up at all in this. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, especially like with the Heideggerian turn that we get in a later chapter that that work was not in here more. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when did when did uh, Gamer Theory come out? Was that 2009? Mm, I, I'll look it up. Gamer Theory. Let's look. 2007. 2007. Yeah. Way ahead of time. Yeah. Anyway, just it, I, the reason I bring that up is that so much of this, although it's not necessarily historiographically, but conceptually, like this is this is what work is talking about in that chapter on civilization three, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the the modeling of the world and then the way the model informs the develop. You know, the reaction to the world. Mm-hmm. That seems really. I I would say that if you were going to write something using this Krogan book, you're going to write an essay, or you're going to use this as part of your um, citational apparatus, you should read Gamer Theory as well, or at least listen to our episode on it. Mm-hmm. The one other thing here in this first chapter uh, that I think is interesting is that uh, Krogan develops a theory of history here that history and doing the work of memory and recording memory, you know, thinking about things that already happened. Uh, is a future, what, what he calls a, quote, future-oriented production, because it it requires you to think about the fact that someone else is going to engage with it. Mm-hmm. You would not write about the past unless you thought someone was going to see it in the future and think about it. And so there's always this, like, kind of weird future-anterior relationship when uh, you're thinking about the past, but you're always thinking about who is going to receive it or how that might be happening. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and this is uh, part and parcel with something like that anti-aircraft gun, which in its most um, beneficial version or like the best version of it that was being thought of, uh, you know, beneficial in the sense of making war and shooting down planes, not beneficial socially. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, it would look at user data. So it would look at how did you miss in the past? You know, you're using this AA gun. You've missed in the past in the same way. You, you know, you overestimate by... Um, you know, from your view screen, uh, an eighth of an inch or whatever. So the model will morph to you looking at what you did in the future so that, or looking at what you did in the past, the actions you took in the past, so that in the future, the uh, the reticle will compensate for your thing, you know, for your uh, your historical mismeasure mm-hmm. about the way that, um, that you're aiming at these planes, right? So for, uh, for Krogan, recording... And putting things into the historical record, whether that's user data or whether that is like narrative, uh, that is always asserting that there will be conditions in the future where where this will be useful. And this is simulation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, at its heart. Choosing what you put into the simulation in order to allow the simulation to give you the capability to do something in the future. Um, this is, uh, I, I just want to call it out here. This is what my book is about, this this kind of uh, key concern, and I call them games of speculation. Woo! Uh, 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 OC, do not steal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but this is my kind of thing, and I say that games are, are kind of doing this all the time. It doesn't require um, this particular technologization, but this is really interesting, and this kind of fuels the rest of the book, too. 
Um, this idea that you can't you can't think about what the outputs are and you can't think about what it means to engage with a simulation without thinking about what went into it to begin with. What are the things that came before? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's something I think is pretty common for us to think about now. You know, we don't think about algorithms without thinking about what kind of values went into the algorithms. Mm-hmm. They're historical. They're created by human beings. Um, and at, because that's the case, our values go into them. And so... How then do you, do you interrupt that or think about it differently than uh, someone who would make an AA gun yeah. <laughs> would do so is, you know, hopefully the thing. But sorry, that's me monologuing for a long time, long, <laughs> a long monologue, drive time monologue on the uh, first chapter. I, Michael, I'll hand it over to you for, for chapter two here, unless you have anything else to say about chapter one. No, uh, I think that that's pretty good uh, in terms of just like setting the ground uh Chapter two is called select gameplay mode uh, and big picture. This is this. This is just and I don't say just to belittle it, but like this is the chapter where Krogan is doing most of the work to buy the claim that uh, digital games, computer games in particular are bound up in all of this other stuff that he's just spent the previous chapter talking about, uh, you know, the post-war development of cybernetics, uh, the anti-aircraft gun, all of this stuff. Uh, chapter two is the one uh, where Krogan is going to say, okay, so contemporary digital computer games are all outgrowths of things that have happened because of all the stuff from the previous chapter. And also, uh, you know, bringing in previous episode, uh, T.L. Taylor, uh, for instance, to talk about how, because this is still, again, like 2011, um, the things that we do in digital computer games, even though they are like virtual or immaterial actions, uh, are real things. They have real consequences in the world. Our sociality on, uh, you know, an MMO is a real type of sociality, even if it is uh, being mediated in a way that like traditionally sociality has not, for example. Um, this is also... a uh, Actually, I think it's in the previous chapter and in this one, there's an interesting claim that uh, Krogan is making that like postmodernism as a cultural movement uh, is kind of a symptom of precisely this uh, uh, creeping of like simulation and like military logistics in into daily life and in particular, like, you know, popular entertainment and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um so we get finally to this point that I think this is this is a uh, uh, an important uh, sort of quote from Krogan here on page 31. To play a computer game today, or to think and write about it, is to be a part of the concretization, uh, to adopt this facticity, to participate in its economic, logistical, technocultural becoming. So that the what he's referring to there is precisely this dynamic by which, uh, like military and sort of civilian or commercial like technological developments are always like growing out of each other and also back into each other Uh, so to play these games means that we are like plugging in directly to this kind of like force in our world and one of the sort of critiques that krogan is going to leverage about a lot of other game study scholars throughout this book is that um A lot of people just kind of like bracket off the fact that video games develop out of, you know, the military industrial complex. 
So uh, he is saying here, right, to play video games even is to uh, participate in kind of this ongoing history. Whether ignored, this is still the same page. Whether ignored, denied, sublated, or explicitly confronted, it is always a question of how to adopt this becoming. We are all betting on the future of computer games with, against, or in some case, or in some other orientation to their predominant becoming under the aegis of what Stiegler calls uh, the programming industries. Uh, which I think is a, a cool term that also sounds just like hellaciously evil. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the, the cabal of the programming industries. It sounds like a uh, a villain from um, uh, what that Death Clock would fight. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Like they're going to like disrupt. I mean, because this is this is the this is the thing about like programming industries, right? That doesn't just mean and and Krogan's going to make this explicit. Um, programming industries there does not just mean like oh people programming computers. Uh, it also you know encapsulates things like the programming of uh, like television programming, right? Streaming programming, Netflix, and so on. Uh, like. There is that kind of like double meaning of programming. And then there is like the sense of cultural programming, uh, page 32. Uh, this is what the program industries ultimately seek to accomplish. The global programming of future patterns of consumption and related behavior supporting consumption cycles. Uh, so globalization here for Krogan is uh, a move toward what he calls hypersynchronization and uh you know i can i can totally see death clock using the power of metal to to disrupt that whole thing mm -hmm. toki wartooth gonna gonna take it to the, the programming industry mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> i mean this is the way the weird thing about all these chapters as we said before right is that um, these are all kind of uh, elaborations of something that that in the conclusion is made like crystal crystal clear mm -hmm. um, or as, as close as you can get to in a, in a book like this. And so it's like, yep, but like uh, their uh, gameplay or what's going on in this chapter, right, is that the uh, ways that things like ARGs grab the world and bend them to the rules of games is what's happening all the time, actually. Mm -hmm. Did you know, capital A, actually, mm -hmm. uh, your whole life is gamified. Mm -hmm. uh, when you log in, we, we this comes up so often on this show and all of our shows, actually. But when you log into Twitter and you realize there's a new main character of the day on Twitter, right? That's mm -hmm. hypersynchronization. Mm hmm. Uh, on the uh, on the flip side, right, uh, or you know something that doesn't come up on every show, when you have a insurance plan, if you are, are lucky enough to have insurance, uh, when you have an insurance plan that uh, has gamified your health outcomes to make your costs lower, mm -hmm. same same deal here, right? You know, it's this kind of uh, um, uh, I mean, totalization. You know, to to use a, a favorite term so far on this episode, right? It's all part of one big system, and it's using some uh, rules. Uh, about uh, you know what is good, right? These uh, like medical, generally sometimes fairly arbitrary health metrics in order to determine exactly how you need to live your life mm -hmm. uh, for best outcomes, right? Technoculture has totally grabbed you on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a brief thing that is mentioned here, and I guess we can talk about it later, is that the the thing that Krogan is going to sort of like fall back on as like the way out of this is going to be play. 
uh, play mm-hmm. is like the potential source of, and here's, this is page 36, uh, the source of the critical potential of games as signal examples of, uh, you know, the development of what he calls the war on contingency uh, that is represented by like the rise of lit- uh, military logistics. Uh, so it is precisely by uh, like running a simulation, but not with kind of an eye toward, I need to figure out what the most likely thing is so I can prepare for it. Uh, more like I'm going to run the simulation because it's really fun to fuck around with the simulation, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. sort of like uh, it is the, non-future oriented future orientedness of like play without sort of purpose if 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 uh you think that's a fair way of maybe characterizing it cameron i do and i also find that just like so depowering and almost nonsensical in its political claim mm-hmm. um you know it's like it's literally just taking kawa's ludus and paideia and being like yeah paideia is gonna take them out <laughs> like uh, and ignoring the fact that like all those like forms of game still exist in like even free play right like i don't understand how your future is not precluded still in that scenario um uh you you are still playing by the rules of the simulation or accepting the simulation and this political perspective also would say that any kind of militative movement for um a uh anti-war politics would necessarily be playing to the logic of of like whatever techno culture to mean it would be depowered meaning by which i say that like i don't know how uh, um like useful protest would look here like mm-hmm. so say there was like a, a massive well organized um labor movement right to i, I you know uh, expropriate the wealth of amazon mhm under the logic that is being presented here, which like generally probably would be a good idea, right? Like uh, if if in a world in which that is possible, underneath what Krogan is saying here, that would be just as like uh, impossibly bad as anything else. Like this is like the political imaginary here. It's I think the thing I find most disappointing about this book. The political imaginary here is like Mary Prankster's level of like hippie belief that like play is going to save us or like that if we play better then then we might get to better politics i just don't think that's the case i I don't i think that um if you look at uh, a militarily organized decolonial movements or um uh paramilitary organizations in the 1970s in the united states that were militating militating against the united states i don't think you can look at their organizational principles that often got significant gains i don't think you can look at those organizational principles and be like they didn't play enough (laughs) you know (laughs) they played by the rules too much Uh, i don't think it's gonna work like that that to me seems the, the I really like this book, and I like the way that it thinks these issues. I think that when Krogan steps into issues of politics, that uh, either it needs way more thought put into it, or it needs a better historiographic background to it. Um, you know, I, I think I need some much better analysis of moments in the past where these things happened. Um, and I don't think you can just be like, well, structure's good, or structure's bad, um, free play good. Because I think free play is a... Um, a political system in and of itself mm-hmm. and can be harnessed by a lot of bad things. I agree. I mean, what it reminds me of is like the, the Zizek ism, right. Of, yes. of don't yeah. act, just think like, cause you know, at the end of the day, what uh, Zizek is going to tell you is the most radical thing you can do is be a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yes, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, you want to talk about chapter three logistical space? 
Yeah, I didn't. I didn't find this one. Uh, obviously, looking at our notes, I didn't find this one nearly as uh, maybe interesting as you did. Um, it's it's digging into flight simulators. Um, th- is this the one that opens with the invocation of nine eleven? I didn't. Uh, I didn't no, I think that's the. And we've got the like two. Chapter. It's the next chapter that does that. Um, but I mean, it's working through the the kind of uh, conceptual stuff going on with flight sims, which mm-hmm. is that. Um, they begin from a military usage, uh, you know, the idea that we need to try to simulate as much as we can about the conditions of flight before we put you in an airplane, and that uh, the the tech that we experience as an entertainment apparatus is just the long-form development uh, of that, you know, initial kind of uh, World War I um, set of systems, if, if I'm right there with my historiography. Um but he's also pointing out, and this is something I thought was really interesting, that there's this kind of like weird feedback loop that's going on between them, which is that um, better entertainment systems produce better military simulations, which produce better uh, civilian applications and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, that the technology that affords all of these things is not, it didn't cleanly move from the military into the civilian public. And now we're just using it to do whatever we want with it. It is part of a loop of development that's happening where the technologies that allow for our entertainment devices to exist in flight sims and everywhere else are also the things that go back and inform the way the military does that. If you want to look to a hyper-contemporary example, look at the big um, discussions that are happening right now around Unity um, being uh, used to develop military technology. Mm Mm-hmm. Or mili- military stuff in a broad sense, right? I mean, that's exactly what Krogan is talking about here. Right. Um, the The initial investments that allowed for games to exist and allowed for something eventually like Unity to be produced, you know, your your own at home capable solution of creating games. That that's the byproduct of sixty years of hardcore investment from the U.S. military for the most part, and then that creates a civilian system that ultimately feeds right back into it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's this additional kind of thing of uh, this question of better sims, you know, mm-hmm. so the idea is that one is always trying to better create the world that is going to be in front of the, someone who is simulating. Um, and so that necessitates a general speed up of everything. This is dramology showing up again, um, that the the uh, desire to create real time feedback across the board, visually, especially uh, necessitates better computational systems, and those better computational systems allow for better forms of realism, and so on, and so on, and so on. And you know, so when uh, people play Microsoft Flight Simulator on their Xbox and are like, "Oh my gosh, it's it's using real world map data in order to demonstrate, you know, or to create this uh, <laughs> this fictional world, or not fictional, but representational world in front of me, and I can like really fly by the uh, you know the statue of Jesus on the mountain or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. That's what Krogan's talking about. <laughs> like, yep. there's a lot of military systems and um, uh, civilian systems that are wrapped around each other there, but that's kind of what i took the most from that it seems like you got a little bit more out of this chapter michael i mean i i think you have just summarized the entire chapter the only reason really that i took more notes than you is because this chapter and i reckon if if this sounds interesting to you right maybe if you're like a flight sim person or like a military game person in general uh you know, this is a good book to read, thing number one. Uh, mm-hmm. Thing number two, this chapter in particular just gives you so much kind of like historical detail on the development of flight simulations. 
Mm -hmm. That's just like, it's just like interesting wild stuff to know. So there's like this description of how, you know, in the earliest flight sims, uh, they were like, it was like a chair that you sat on and they built basically built like conveyor belts. Uh, below this chair where they would assemble models like they had like they were using uh, models from uh, uh, model railroad hobbyists right yeah, and they would make yeah. like model landscapes uh, that like moved underneath you on a conveyor belt to like simulate uh, uh, the experience of being up in the air and of course like the, the big transition is from kind of this like extremely like physical analog method of simulating flight to uh, the screen so that's like a big you know flashpoint for krogan uh, but just mm -hmm. in terms of like you know the history of this technology things like you know the, the guy who uh basically you know puts together the first flight sim that gets contracted and then like you know made at scale for the u.s military uh bases that technology on uh the pneumatic organ in the player piano mm -hmm, yeah. right so like that's where flight sims come from uh and that's an interesting fact because you know and this is a this is a thing that sort of gets repeated and it's not something I have rigorously fact-checked, so uh, you can carry it forward and continue to repeat it and always carry in your own mind the notion that it may be true and I may be full of shit. Uh, but a thing that gets said is that up until the invention of the computer, the the most complex uh, machine that like uh, people had built was like the pipe organ. Uh, because there are just so many moving parts in like a full size pipe organ. So it's interesting to see like the pipe organ give way to the flight sim. Uh, and then there's also this other bizarre moment where he's quoting a military like, you know, developer or scientist engineer or whatever, uh, a guy who's like doing early VR research who talks about how like the ultimate display is like when it showed you like the changes in matter, uh, the matter in the room that you are in would exhibit those changes. Uh, like basically if, if this thing showed you, you yourself dying, you would die in real life. That would be the ultimate VR display, uh, which is mm -hmm. also the logic of Mondo Nano, incidentally, not the, like the death thing, but like, what if I had a representation of a thing that I could use to, uh, move things around and then suddenly in the real world, uh, analogous or homologous things got moved in analogous or homologous ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the, the, uh, little atomic, uh, Telescope or no microscope, mm -hmm. right? That's then like grabbing nanoparticles and moving them around. Uh, yeah, I there's something I bet really really interesting here. Uh, it, I agree that this is like a fascinating chapter in like just content wise. There's a lot of really cool stuff going on. Um, this is the chapter that everyone I've ever talked to about this book. This is what we end up talking about because there is this so much. I mean, basically trivia here, mm -hmm. right? Like, and I don't, I don't say it to minimize it, but it's just like information that I'd never seen anywhere else. And that has like stuck in my head, but I wonder if there's a connection and I, you know, if you're looking for papers or if you listen to this and you're looking for content to write that neither of us will write, but would love to read and talk about, I would love to know if there is a connection between this mode of flight simulation and wargaming mm -hmm. because napoleonic wargaming is also using all of this like model railroad stuff and then developing it from there and it would be that the people who end up making things like dungeons and dragons or any of that kind of or doing any of that kind of wargaming a lot of them did military service and a lot of them did military service in world war ii or korea mm -hmm. um and so they would be 
somewhere in the middle here, right? Between these previous systems and these like screen-based systems that they eventually moved to, I think in the 1950s. And so I, I really wonder if there's a historical linkage there or if it's just, you know, both going to the source, you know, the primal scene, as it were, uh-huh. of, uh, uh, of uh, modeling, which is model railroads. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. Like to me, there's just like a little bit of a brain scratch there of like, oh, what if there is a connection? Wouldn't that be interesting? Mm-hmm. But um, I, I don't know. I mean, to quote uh, uh, Jennifer Coolidge in the... Uh, guest film A Mighty Wind thank god for model trains or else we wouldn't have gotten ideas for the real ones <laughs> that's very good it's and she del- like she is such the perfect performer to deliver that line like total deadpan <laughs> I like that in that that imagination that that like model trains are model means like ideal. Yes, <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like <laughs> like the ideal trains. Uh, okay, but chapter four. Um, this is about the nine eleven hijackers. Yes, uh, they uh, they used they yeah. used commercial flight sims to train. Yeah, if people didn't know that, I mean, this is a huge. It's really interesting to kind of read this and be like, yeah, of course, like everyone knows that, but. We might be in a world in which people don't know that at this point. I mean, it was such a huge part of the discussion around video games at the time mm-hmm. um, that one could use video games that had representations of the real world in them, not just in that video game violence debate kind of way, but specifically to train to do real things in the world. So their use of Microsoft Flight Simulator was like newsworthy. Um, what, Spider Man 2? Um, I can't remember. It's the uh, first yeah. Spider-Man game removes, uh, I think, the the Twin Towers from it. But the other thing to keep in mind here with this is that we are two years after Columbine. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, and, like, so much is made of the fact that the Columbine shooters are, like, playing FPSs, right? They're playing Doom. Uh, and so two years later, like, we have that whole moral panic about Columbine and in Doom. Uh, and then two years later, we have this massive terrorist action uh, whose perpetrators used flight sims. Yeah. Oh, it's the first Spider-Man film yes. that, that removed the, the Twin Towers. Uh, the uh, But also, I think um, Grand Theft Auto 3 removes them as well. Yes. Um, I think out of it. So anyway, there's a lot of like concern and issue and uh, things going around here. This is, like you're saying, kind of a lightning rod for the time of of what is the connection between what you do in a video game and what you do in the real world as we've talked about a few times now and um that this chapter goes to pearl harbor to figure that out Mm -hmm. specifically the michael bay film pearl harbor (laughs) not the actual place Yes. (laughs) yes not the actual place of pearl harbor uh that's uh for another book that we read what was the book we talked about what was that wasn't that patterson Oh, maybe it's the Terra Fickle book. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time. I mean, this is like the, for people, uh, if you're listening to this episode and you're thinking, dang, his brain's not working too good in this episode. It's because uh, this is the busiest month of the year for me. And uh, I just feel like I'm living in molasses. If you want a little bit of uh, humanity on the other side of the podcast experience, mm-hmm. uh, I just haven't such a, no, I think it's the Terra Fickle book. Oh, yeah, I do know. It's the Terra Fickle book talking about Pokemon Go yes. near Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. There we go. All right. I put it all together. <laughs> we read those books like back to back too. And so, uh, you know, talking about similar things, they run into my head as well. But um, but yeah, so eventually ends up going to Michael Bay here. What, what does Krogan have to say about Michael Bay? Michael Bay, Michael. Uh, uh, 
Michael on Michael, my new one-person Michael Bay podcast. <laughs> you should do it. You should do it. You should record five-minute episodes. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, okay. There's another episode of Michael on Michael. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, what we need to know, actually, is that the thing that uh, he talks about before he talks about Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor is that he talks about Microsoft's, uh, like late 90s i think uh pacific theater uh world war ii pacific theater flight sim um which he uses to kind of like set some ground rules right so what can we say about this game uh it's it weirdly enough does not talk at all about pearl harbor uh as the beginning mm-hmm. of the u.s involvement in in the war and in the specific uh the pacific theater uh, oh yeah, that is interesting. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Uh well what he says is right, it cuts off the beginning and the end of the actual Pacific Theater, right? So it cuts mm-hmm. off Pearl Harbor and it cuts off uh Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um yeah. the latter one is maybe a little bit more understandable, but uh, you know, he, he raises the question like it is interesting that Pearl Harbor is like gone here, so it means that uh this flight sim represents the Pacific Theater as not so much a narrative with like a beginning and an end as it is kind of like a repeatable set of tasks. Uh, and yeah. so the actual experience of playing this game is like there are cutscenes and they're sort of modeled on uh, 1950s uh, like, you know, World War Two comics, uh, the kinds that the kids in Stand By Me are reading. Uh, check out Just King Things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the victory culture of that time. So there are like these sort of brief little cutscenes that are about like your pilot, quote unquote, right? The guy that you're ostensibly like guiding through this whole campaign. Um, but really, they're just kind of there to like set up like some sort of context for the mission in which you are going to enter this space and do your flight sim stuff. So that happens. Uh, Michael Bay. Uh, releases Pearl Harbor. What year did that movie come out? Was that 2001? It was the 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah, I'll look it up. You talk. Okay. So uh, Michael Bay, uh, you know, American filmmaker, uh, has a film called Pearl Harbor that comes out and is just like reviled. Like people hate it. Uh, May of 2001. Yes. Uh, So it is it is a it this is like just after uh saving private ryan so we're entering and like i think this is also like band of brothers type era so we're entering a sort of uh particular phase of u.s world war ii nostalgia and uh on the one hand uh pearl harbor is kind of a part of this and on the other hand it is like widely reviled as being a particularly sort of like stupid or tasteless part of this because uh it uh pa- Krogan goes to the reviewers here, like film reviewers, uh, what people are saying at the time is like, this is this is less a movie. It's more of a video game because it's such it's an effects film. Like we have this plot about it's like a love triangle. There are two guys. There's this girl that they're into. And, you know, there's tension between them. Uh, but wouldn't you know it? Um, this is also actually classically Zizekian, right? Uh, we have a, a sort of personal problem that gets resolved via the characters uh, orientations toward a larger political issue. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the love triangle gets resolved because the characters like put aside their, their sort of like petty squabbling in order to, you know, help the U S war effort. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the plot is kind of negligible and there are just like so many, uh, like, 
fight scenes and they are so like special effects heavy. And this is also like a big moment in kind of the advent of computer generated effects, right? We, we just talked about mm-hmm. the first Spider-Man film, um, which also made a sort of huge move in terms of, uh, you know, like the, I remember like the, uh, computer animations of like Spider-Man, like whipping around New York City was like a big thing uh, when that movie came out. So similarly, uh, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor has all of these shots where like the camera is following a bomb as it falls out of a plane and impacts the ground and explodes. Things you could not do with a traditional camera, things that you can do with computer generation. Uh, and these scenes are also just like long i think the actual pearl uh, uh he gives the runtime in the book i think the actual pearl harbor scene in that movie is like 45 minutes long like it's just yeah the movie so the movie itself is extremely have you seen this movie before uh i saw parts of it because yeah like you said it's extremely long and i'm like i'm not into this i don't this is why My... this is why michael on michael needs to happen continue exactly so you can really give us your your in-depth opinion of it uh, the, uh, my cousin, when I was growing up, loved this movie. Mm-hmm. He was like way into this movie. I've seen this movie like 50 times. <laughs> I've seen it a lot. And yeah, there's a full film and then Pearl Harbor happens. Mm-hmm. Like there is truly a full movie with all of its manipulations and maneuverings. You know, Ben Affleck ends up, you know, kind of shot down in the European theater. You know, he's gone for a while. Kate Beckinsale gets with the other guy. I can't remember who it is. Josh Hartnett mm-hmm. gets with him. Like all this stuff happens. And then Pearl Harbor, <laughs> the events of the Pearl Harbor attack occur. And and yeah, you're right. It's like 45 minutes of, of the stuff. And specifically, right, it's not just that it's uh, digital effects. It is that it's uh, a huge amount of it is done via digital cameras. So, you know, shots that are physically impossible to do. The one that you're talking about, the one that Krogan brings up, and the one that's, I think, most famous for this is where we follow a bomb falling out of a plane. And I think it, it ends up going into a like a like a pipe, you know, like a, mm-hmm. a vertical pipe stack in a, in a boat, and we follow it down into the thing. And, you know, that's just impossible to do. Um, Similar kind of stuff uh, going on. Similar kind of controversy, even, too. If you've seen the David Fincher film Panic Room, there are lots of truly just impossible shots in that in that movie that are stitched together with uh, digital images where, like, the camera moves through a, you know, millimeter crack or goes into a wall and, like, manipulates and goes around a right-hand turn and then another right-hand turn and things like that. And while we don't think, like, no one even talks about this anymore in the sense of like this is never going to show up in a review the vast majority of movies that you see are going to have digital cameras in them you know that are shots that are wholly made and wholly created from from nothing or from uh, composite parts but at the time this is a a, not a, a brand new phenomenon but the heavy reliance on it as a critical part of the lexicon of cinema is is new. That is a transformation that's happening. And Pearl Harbor, like much of Michael Bay's movies, they don't try to shy away from it. Mm-hmm. You can watch Panic Room and you can forget, you know, that that this is impossible. I don't think you can watch Pearl Harbor and think and, and forget that this is an impossible shot that's being made. And so that's partially what Krogan is pulling on here too, is that Bay has it right out in front of you. Hey, this is something wild going on Mm -hmm. you know this is what uh you know i've brought it up a million times because it's the thing that is uh uh, one of my prime annoyances in the world but every frame of paintings video on bayham Mm -hmm. right notes these things and this is a thing that is kind of typified in in bay's like excessive style of shots that seem to serve no purpose or are excessive to some reason 
And the flip side of that, the thing that we have to take seriously here is that Bay is doing these things in order to draw attention to the uh, artifice of the thing to be like, hey, holy shit, we're doing this. Like, look at this thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't do this in Saving Private Ryan. What are you talking about? Like, no one followed a bomb in that movie. Like, get out of here. You're all, you know, classic Hollywood looking shit. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to like, you know, follow a trace around. Uh, and see what happens here. So it's the, the artifice is the point. Um, and th- people really, really um, got their hackles up about that at the time. Yeah. I mean, the, the review is essentially right that this is disrespectful to the actual events and the actual people and the actual lives lost in the Pearl Harbor attacks because it transforms it into a just cinematic spectacle, right? We, we have a film yeah. that is about actual historical events that is being treated as a vehicle for the latest uh, developments in, uh, you know, Cracker Jack FX technology, uh, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of uh, homologous, let's say, to these debates about like, well, can you make an ethical war video game, right? Yeah. Uh, or just can you make an ethical war movie, generally speaking? But, uh, you know, the, the, the same sort of the, the, the critical line, right, is that this movie is bad because it is like a video game. And then Krogan's argument ends up being like, yeah, it is like a video game because it's an effects film. And it is like this Microsoft flight simulator in that the plot primarily exists to string together uh, sequences of effects shots, right? We, we, yeah. we watch the plot for like some basic context and then we watch the effects do their thing. Yeah, 100%. Um, and he sometimes somehow brings this around. I'm not quite sure how this happens, but to Espen Arthas' uses of uh, aporias in his work, but I'm not quite sure how that connection works. I'm not sure either, uh, but I do know that like this is also the beginning of the next chapter, and I'm wondering if it's, if yes. it's just showing up here because we're trying to like transition between like two two parts of this argument. Um, because the, the thing that, you know, uh, sort of gets uh, put forth here, uh, I mean, the, the key term, because it's Arseth, right, is is ergodicity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, what Krogan is talking about is, is uh, off, like, what Arseth calls ergodic time. Uh, quote, this is page 76, more so than in narrative forms, which privilege the time of the tale and its telling, ergodic time concerns the time of the audience, or, more accurately, the interactors who are producers as well as recipients of the work. Uh, And this is something that applies to uh, that flight sim, for instance, um, because precisely the the thing that I was gesturing at before, where, like, World War II, uh, or the Pacific theater of World War II, is not a narrative in that game, so much as it is kind of like a a bounded space uh, with certain tasks that you can move your way through and, like, repeat or iterate on, right? It is not so much about, I. it's not Shakespeare uh, beginning Romeo and Juliet saying, you know, now here here's the two hours traffic of our stage. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's here is this thing that can be repeated and you, the player, the co-producer, you're going to spend as much time on this thing as you want. Uh, And I think actually what's interesting about ergodic time showing up here is that this is, I I would say now, right now in our present moment, this is the primary uh, media temporality of like fandom, right? Uh, Mm. This is, this is like, 
you know, who's going through the Dark Souls lore and updating the wiki, uh, who is putting through the the non-trivial effort in order to uh, reassemble, or not even reassemble, but sort of like decode these kind of media objects. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking here too, you know, not just in game games, but in visual culture in a general sense, right? They're, they're apparently, this is without spoilers, and I say it's without spoilers because uh, I don't watch any of this stuff, but I like catch the fandom weirdly enough. So, but... Um, there's apparently an alignment of timelines on the Loki TV show Mm -hmm. and, uh, WandaVision, Mm -hmm. these two Marvel television programs. There's like an event that kind of resonates between two of them. And so like you see people combing through and then like finding the, the shots where they align and then like, you know, aligning the video together. I'm thinking here too. I mean, this is something I uh, did really heavily engage with, but Twin Peaks, the return, the third season of Twin Peaks, and then playing that final episode back or no playing the the second to last episode backwards right mm-hmm. and then playing it up with the first episode and there's all these weird alignments or uh with the last episode sorry and there's all these like interesting alignments in visual form so even not just like things where you're putting in non-trivial effort in a gameplay sense but the the work of being a fan of so much of visual culture is is spending time combing through all the visual information and figuring out alignments and information and data and doing that also that kind of wiki work that you were talking about too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of how we start out with Arseth and he talks about epiphany and narrative or no epiphany and aporia. Uh, and then the mm-hmm. next chapter, The Game of Life, is where we sort of resume this question of Aporia and Epiphany. Uh, to ground this a little bit, what Arseth is talking about specifically is like the experience of playing Doom, uh, where, you know, you're playing Doom, it's first person, you're you're running around your little uh, tunnel on Mars, and uh, enemies are popping out and you're shooting them, and you're running down the tunnel and more enemies pop out and you shoot them, you pick up your health pack, you find your ammo, you're, you're doing all this stuff, and eventually you get to a point where uh, you've maybe shot all the enemies, and you're just running through empty hallways, and you don't know where to go next. So you have hit aporia, right? The, the moment of sort of like... Uh, non-meaning right there, there's like an absence or like an inability to communicate or express uh between you and the game uh you, there's like just nothing happening that is aporia right the vacancy uh and then you realize as you're running down one of these hallways uh you see maybe like a health kit that you haven't picked up or something and then you're like oh i haven't picked that up because i haven't gone down that hallway so then you take that turn you pick up the health kit you fight some more enemies and then you find the exit from the level uh and that's your epiphany right the moment of realization when kind of that vacancy gets obscured or like papered over uh because you've figured out how to get through the aporia that the game has kind of worked you into right the problem that it's presented and one of the things that arseth says is that uh, this is this is the pre-narrative master trope of human experience, or at least one of them. And uh, but yeah. meaning like like what what Arseth is is saying, and Krogan is going to critique him for this. Arthas is saying is like this is what being in the world is. That's just how it is. Is like it's like running around a bunch of hallways, not knowing what you're supposed to do until suddenly uh, out of nowhere you feel like you do. Um, yeah. And uh, the critique then in this next chapter, uh, The Game of Life, that Krogan uh, uh, levies here is that uh, 
in universalizing this experience and saying it is like a pre-narrative master trope of what it means to be a human being in the world, uh, Arseth is letting the logics of the first-person shooter, and particularly the first-person shooter as it grows out of, like, military, the anti-aircraft light gun technology, right? He is making mm-hmm. that the core of the, the human experience of uh, essentially, like, a system that was originally designed for simulating uh the sudden and abrupt appearance of like enemy aircraft uh that you can then fire down uh and and so that is a thing that krogan wants to kind of push back on uh and and you know kind of rehistoricize by pulling in this this uh military history yeah and you know I, i have two like kind of broad thoughts about that and i think ultimately i mean that is what's happening in this chapter i don't think we have to get super deep into it but um, you know, my two broad thoughts is one, I don't think Espen Arseth, Espen Arseth is using um, uh, Aporia in a way that I don't necessarily agree with. Yeah. Um, uh, Aporia is most often uh, pulled out of the work of Jacques Derrida. Mm-hmm. Um, Aporia, there is quite literally an absence that has to be navigated around. It's not like. It's not like, uh, you know, a little like a barrier in front of you and he's like, whoop, I got to hop over this thing. Right. Like it's a ontological problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is a it, it's a constitutive absence, quite literally, yes. meaning that a system begins to exist in a system of uh, interpretation or meaning or being comes into existence in order to deal with some sort of primary problem. The social um, so is predicated example- on its exclusions. Oh, my God. Derrida, it was Derrida all along. <laughs> no, but but you know, uh, or something uh, like death, mm-hmm. right? D- death is apparatic. You, there is no way of transcending or getting over it, and so we have to come up with complicated solutions for coming to terms with something like uh, the absolutely unexperienceable. Um, so we come up with things like an imagination of of existence after you know uh, death, or uh, we come up with elaborate social um, mechanisms for dealing with the reality of other people's death and of never experiencing or seeing them again. Right. So um, I, it's not like a problem to be. It's not being able to not figure out the Sudoku. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like that is. I don't. I would not agree. This is a a, a kind of thing, and I haven't read this Arseth piece, so. In the Arseth piece, there could be a little bit more of uh, an elaboration of like how this is being adapted, you know. So I'm not being hypercritical of Espen Arseth uh, here, but the way that this term is kind of being deployed, I would say you should not, as a listener of the show and as someone who is engaging with this idea, you should go back to other people who are using that rather than just kind of taking Arseth's word for it because it's quite a bit more complicated um, than than is being kind of uh, shown here. Uh, the other thing is that I think, uh, this criticism that Krogan is levying is so interesting and smart, right? Like, hey, you have taken a, um, contingent system of the world, right? A hist- something from a historical moment in time, and you have turned it into human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh, like, that, that's, that is a problem. Um, however, it, that, that, that has no worth as an argument, really, for me, right? It has no applicable use, without a comparative of what existed before or since. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. This isn't human nature. That's awesome. Well, ha- what were the other constitutive, constitutive ways that human beings have dealt with the problem of um, indeterminacy and then solving for that indeterminacy in front of them, right? Like, 
if this is not universal human nature, which I agree it probably isn't, then what are the previous forms that this is borrowing from or adapting from or displacing in the world? Meaning before the invention of the, 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 you know, the AA targeting system, how did people deal with these things of indeterminacy and, and solving the problems in front of them? Because correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, I think human beings have generally been able to do empirical reasoning for thousands of years. <laughs> right I, like I agri so. agricultural farming <laughs> like the invention of agriculture is allows you or requires you to think the future yeah so i'm pretty sure like tens of thousands of years human beings have been able to think logistically even though not in those terms but conceptually about what is going to happen in the future based on what has happened in the past and then make novel decisions about what that is right um, and, you know, eventually that gets eaten into the term empiricism, but it's just looking at what's in front of you and making choices based on things you know already. Yeah, if there's so... one thing I know about history, it's that people love to invent astrological calendars. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I, you know, so th this to me, like, that, that's the huge kind of, like, hole here for me is, like, I will accept that this is incorrect or, or uh, a historical aberration that is being universalized. But that that really presents a much more complicated question, which is if this is being instrumentalized by technoculture and being warped away from, you know, uh, some other thing that human beings have been doing, then what is the other things human beings have been doing? And if human beings have been able to do something reliably, like think next season for, I don't know, 30,000 years, something like that, mm -hmm. then... Um, we might want to be talking about that long durational capability. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would call that human nature, uh, but I would say that that is a pretty uh, constitutive piece of human culture, at least, mm -hmm. um, broadly speaking. I wouldn't universalize it, but I would say, I don't know. Like, if people uh, know when the tide is coming in, mm -hmm. and if people know when the river is going to flood, and if people know what germination time looks like, that sounds like they're doing a lot of these same things for a very long time. To me, yeah. uh, and that's maybe that's just me. I mean, I, I I agree. I think again, right? That the the key differentiating factor here for Krogan is that this is it's all that stuff is happening, but now it's happening in the computer uh, because fundamentally <laughs> already in too much, right? Too too much too much at all at once. Because <laughs> like fundamentally, the argument of this chapter is just like in in the first person shooter. And this is page ninety five. Quote: In this mm -hmm. contested space, the player plays at mastering the communication network in which he or she is a key node. So that's not just like mm -hmm. you know the player has to learn how to read. The the heads up display and all that stuff even though that's still true right um yeah. it's things like interpreting what is actually like what is happening beyond the heads up display what is actually being represented on the screen and then what can i as the player do with my uh controls and with the you know abilities that the game affords me what can i do in response to that and for uh krogan this is i think the point where he, i think this is the chapter where he says this is the primal scene of cybernetics <laughs> yes uh, it is. which is and for cybernetics which we didn't uh define extensively but one of the ways that weiner himself talks about cybernetics is it's basically like uh how do you conceptual how do you develop a theory of communication uh for a person who is plugged into a machine system right how does a machine communicate information to a person and then how does a person process that information and then communicate something back to the machine in response to it essentially mm -hmm. um yeah 
And so like to to play an FPS is to be plugged into a, a cybernetic system in that way. And I'm just going to say also like a great example of this is the Five Nights at Freddy's games, because that is nothing but like having a whole bunch of information being uh, shot at you right through these various screens that you're supposed to be watching. But the, the friction of the game is that you can't look at all of the screens at once. So there are always uh, and this is, again, very like anti-aircraft uh, uh Norman we uh, Norbert Weiner stuff um, there are enemies in the Five Nights at Freddy's games who are going to encroach on your position and you have to you know spin all these plates like watch all these screens to see where the enemies are which ones are closest to you and then which ones can you turn away so like that's a great example of uh, what Krogan is talking about when he talks about how um, you know this is what games do they plug you into into the cybernetic primal scene which is for him right Norbert Weiner's like simulation of uh here you're looking at a screen here's a little beeping dot right and that's your enemy aircraft and now you pick up your light gun and you shoot it yes and uh like i think all of this like argumentation is really good here mm -hmm. uh, you know I'm, I'm i'm poking a little bit um at, at Krogan, but I'm poking at Krogan precisely because this is a thing that I also really wonder about and care about and, and am wrestling with in my own work here. Um, and, uh, you know, so that don't take, don't take any of my like, Hmm, what about agriculture is like a, uh, uh <laughs> you didn't talk about the entire history of agriculture <laughs> in your book yeah. on post-war <laughs> cybernetics. Exactly. Right. Like that's not when I, you know, that, that is not the criticism, uh, being levy here, but, the but, but precisely because this is how I'm thinking, like, you know, gosh, how do, how do I also account for all of these things while also not doing this thing, which I don't think is sufficient, or at least not in my own work, which is, I don't think you can just be like, Hey, it's 1945. We're going to talk about everything after that. Um, I like that. That is not ultimately what I'm interested in. I'm interested in maybe broader systems. And so for me, it's like, I don't know, like one side or the other, I don't know where you got to go, but uh, I think this is a really great chapter. I think if you're looking at like which chapters to excerpt, you know, we talk about this quite often. I think uh, chapter uh, was it the chapter three or uh, chapter three, I think, is like the big one when I was talking about before. And then chapter five, if I were going to teach this, would probably be the one that I would teach. OK, yeah. So chapter three, that's flight sims. And this is chapter five uh, mm -hmm. FPSs uh, slash Aporia. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep um do we uh it, this also has like some of the like the wildest writing in this book this is on 107 quote the cold war pure war oh I'm not, i gotta get my uh <clears throat> the cold war mm -hmm. pure war and now the permanent war on terror marked by this general adoption of an informational solution to the challenge to maintain the program against the imminent and imminent threat of its undoing <laughs> like real Metal Gear Solid vibes. I was gonna say it is it is kind of an oversight that Metal Gear Solid doesn't show up here. <laughs> this could just be a book on Metal Gear Solid. It could be. Um, and I'm gonna be honest with you, right? I, I have, you know, kind of in the next couple years my my sights on a Metal Gear Solid project in a general sense, and I'm gonna lean real hard on this book uh to to do it. So um yeah, but but you know, th this is the thing is that um, I mean, this is what he's pushing on here, right? These logics are totalizing. And so when we when we say things about like how a human being kind of universally interacts with a game, we're importing a lot of other stuff in with it, right? Cold War, Pure War. Let's talk about these last two chapters pretty quickly because I think they're going to be pretty quick to talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, chapter six is called Other Players and Other Spaces. This is the Heidegger chapter. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, so you you already said like you, you're not into kind of Heidegger generally in this particular engagement. I will, you know, say props to this for bringing up Heidegger and then mentioning that he was a member of the Nazi party, which is a thing that I think I think it's get it gets remarked upon more frequently now, but I remember being in grad school and just like I would I would keep track of uh, times when I read articles when people said things like, um, you know, so-and-so is a bad thinker because at the end of the day, uh, he's he's a Platonist, right? He's an idealist. <laughs> he's not uh, taking, he's, you know, ignoring kind of material uh, reality or yeah. something like that. And then in the next paragraph, uh, just uncritically bringing in an idea from Heidegger. <laughs> and like no context, no kind of like working through that. So uh, good, good on Krogan here. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty hardcore on this. I mean, uh, Heidegger is a Nazi thinker mm -hmm. and uh, uh, his philosophy um, is heavily influenced by Nazism. Um, I, I am all around on it. I don't think that means we can't think Heidegger or that we can't engage with it. Um, and I think Krogan, Krogan is doing like a pretty good job here of specifically working through the kind of capacities of Dasein here, yeah. uh, which is kind of like being plus, I guess, mm -hmm. um, is the best way to put it if you're not familiar with it. I would say that if you are not um, someone who is familiar with Heidegger's work already um, and don't have a little bit of a working knowledge, this would be a very difficult chapter yeah. to work for, through. And also, I just don't think that it's particularly helpful. I, I think this is a chapter that could be cut from the book and we wouldn't lose very much. Mm -hmm. Thesis statement for the chapter. <clears throat> mm -hmm. We often think of multiplayer games, MMOs, uh, you know, networked FPSs and things like that as uh, bringing together distinct individuals into kind of this virtualized space that allows them to play together. Uh, actually... Right. The better way to think about this is that uh, multiplayer systems, by being designed to network individuals together, in fact, create the individuals that they purport to connect. Yeah, right. So the, the system that brings you together is, that, in fact, atomizing you and turning you into a unit that can kind of bebop around in World of Warcraft or whatever. Mm hmm. Um, yep. And I, I put that kind of flippantly, but like that is like that is a point to consider, right? Like, yeah. in what ways does uh, the fact that these systems have been designed for individuals, in fact, construct us as individuals before we even get to be communities? Absolutely. And, you know, this is uh, uh, someone like Alexander Galloway has moved really into this kind of thing of being very critical of the explanatory mechanisms that we have to talk about the, the world. But even if you think about something like uh, I'm going to a conference to do networking, right? Human beings are social mm -hmm. in a broad general sense. Human beings have always had communities and cultures that they're engaged in. That's a big part of, I think, humans as, as a uh, species. But when you begin to say, I'm going to do some networking, you are retroactively saying, I was not networking before, right? Mm -hmm. I was non-social. I was just a little Adam running around in the world uh, in my video game, uh, being a little guy running around. And then I entered into a network situation, networking, right? So, like, even that metaphor reconstructs or constructs a scenario uh, where we are alienating ourselves, quite literally. And that's uh, essentially what's happening here with the descriptive capability of online gaming, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's a particular kind of technics, that's the word being used here, that uh, sets a particular kind of relation on being. Mm -hmm. And this one, this is a chapter that's like just so in the weeds on Heidegger and Jean-Luc Nancy and then Bataille for some reason, but also Bataille's not getting cited. Well, this, <laughs> so this I, is what's weird. So I, I don't know where that's coming from. Because yeah. the, the Nancy, it, the, 
the Bataille comes through a quote from Nancy, <laughs> right? He he yes. cites Nancy, who is quoting Bataille. Yeah, this this chapter leans really heavily on the inoperable community, um, which is a response book to I think. Uh, um, Oh, gosh, uh, what's his name? I can see it. The Instance of My Death, uh, Blanchot. Mm-hmm. It's a response to Blanchot, who is responding to Bataille. So, like, th- this is just a, uh, a a book that is so in the weeds on all of these things. <laughs> um, I think it would be very hard to read without a background in any of it. So, um, you know, take that as you will. Chapter 7, uh, playing through, Michael. Uh, yeah, this is, this is the chapter where... Uh, I've mentioned him a couple times already. Gonzalo Frasca comes up and his uh, thoughts on simulation as the form of the future, uh, but also uh, the way he's importing kind of, you know, theatrical or dramaturgical thought uh, from Augusto Boll, who is a guy who, um, you know, uh, is part of it, like a like a, a movement in, in kind of the lineage of, say, like some Brecht. Uh, how do we make theater as an experience like liberatory for people uh so uh you know brecht has epic theater bowl has uh the theater of the oppressed or for the oppressed i think is is the specific way it's uh formulated um and uh basically this is just working through frasca's thoughts on that and trying to see like okay so frasca's basic position is that what good like you know games are going to do in this in this kind of uh new world of simulation uh is that they are going to somehow route us back out of them to allow us to sort of critically reflect on the like what are the things that the simulation is assuming or what are we assuming about the world that the simulation does not have to assume that then maybe allows us to imagine the world differently uh Mm -hmm. And and then that's kind of, you know, what is in big picture going on here? Uh, and oh, no, this is actually the chapter where uh, he says that games reproduce the primal scene of cybernetics, right? The man stuck between uh, or stuck into kind of a machine. And of course, like I say man there because that's the term that Weiner is going to use. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, there is like. I mean, that's just that's just what this is about, right? This is a chapter on like news games. We talk about Frasca's uh, game September 12th, uh, which is made in response to like the U.S. response to the 9-11 attacks where, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, again, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound like really deprecating, but I don't mean it to be. But like in 2001, to make an online flash game that could not be won and that had like explicit political content. So September 12th is a game where like you're seeing like a little uh, like Afghan village and you just call in like bomb strikes. Right. And yeah. they're like little people. You see. Yeah, there's little little dudes running around mm-hmm. and you uh, you can see some of them are like little uh, like labeled terrorists mm-hmm. and you bomb you click on them to bomb them. And then it turns all of the other little dudes around into terrorists right. or enemy combatants, right? I forget the exact language here, right? But it's just to say the process of responding is the thing that produces the conditions to which, uh, for the reasons that uh, you know, uh, the Imperial Corps is being attacked. Um, real, I mean, uh, kind of like critical, hardcore, middle-of-the-road procedural rhetoric stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so, right, it's just, you know, reading this, uh, this game, for instance, and uh, explaining how, you know, by taking the form of a game, but also removing certain like teleologies from what we assume when we talk about games, that there are things that can be won, for instance, uh, September 12th uh, becomes this kind of uh, critical piece uh, or a potentially consciousness raising piece. Uh and that's, you know, kind of what this is. And this is also where we get a lot of the the critique of Frasca uh, for consigning narrative to the past, right? Apparently, I, I think this, this is what he's drawing from Frasca, that uh, narrative is about the past and, like, theater or drama is about things that are happening in the present. And the thing that I appreciate about Krogan is that he's like, no, actually, like, both of these things can be f- future-oriented, too. It just so happens that simulation is... a this is page 152. Simulation is a mutated adoption of the narrative mnemotechnical tool dedicated to the future in a specific experimental hypothetical manner, one that may be critically cited via creative reproduction, such as in September 12th. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And, and, is that it? Well, this, uh, the, I guess one little tiny thing I'll say is that this is also a chapter with just some like wild writing in mm-hmm. it. I really like this uh, It's on 142 quote to speculate on the future is to make the means of speculation possible end quote, um, which is like to even think the future, you need a model of what the future is mm-hmm. uh, or, or, you know, potential conditions. Right. I mean, I'm writing a book on speculation in games. It's, it, this is an interesting uh, tack to take on that, right? Mm-hmm. Which kind of presumes that, like, uh, speculation has been wholly arrested in the world and, like, one cannot think outside of the conditions. And uh, that, that smells like the work of a villain I know named Immanuel Kant. <laughs> 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 hmm. Hmm. Some sort of anti-realist thinker. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Um, uh, my book uh, takes a little bit of a hatchet to, to to some of this via our good friend Quentin Miyasu. Yes, the wily Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> how he's known. <laughs> yeah, uh, when you go to academic conferences and people are like, "Oh, are you presenting on the wily Frenchman this time?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I I really and then of course the final chapter here is the conclusion, but we've already talked about that. So and I think more people should engage with this book and more people should engage with the meat and the content of this book rather than the broad claim. I don't think this is the kind of book that should be like Krogan twenty eleven. You know, at the end of a sentence, mm-hmm. this should be something. If you're engaging with it, you probably need to dedicate a couple paragraphs to it. You know, if there's one thing in the show that we repeatedly go back to, it's that there are really fascinating books that, for whatever reason, circulate as one single thesis statement. Um, You know, this is something I brought up in the Kashana Gray um, episode that we did, is that if you treat that book as just like your one citation line for race and games, you are doing yourself a deep disservice because there are in-depth arguments that are happening happening about how human beings engage with uh, video games and how video games themselves are racialized systems in that book. And you should mm-hmm. engage with those things in depth in your academic work, I think. Um, and I think that's a similar case here. Yeah, the way I put it to you, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago when I started reading this is that I'd only seen it as kind of a citation for, you know, hey, there's like a military entertainment complex, basically. Mm-hmm. 
And then I read this book and really like the book, the book says, yeah, there's a military entertainment complex. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but then like the next move is uh, to say that. And because of this, there are like political, philosophical and ethical problems uh, that fundamentally are at the heart of the very possibility of the existence of video games. Absolutely. And that go beyond, you know, that. So when someone's like, hey, you play video games, did you know that they were made by the military? Which is like a thing you see occasionally. Mm -hmm. And then like the stock response to that is like, you know, presenting that image of Sonic the Hedgehog to be like, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is a book that presents that whole scenario and cannot be kind of pithily responded to. Um, If you're making claims about what we then do, you know, how would we? interrupt this or how would we get beyond it or how would we destroy the system even um this this book is making such a complicated case for how it's interweaved in there that you can't dismiss it you really have to kind of talk about it and that's partially what fuels my you know what i was talking about earlier in the show or my just kind of displeasure with the political outcomes that are offered in this book or, or the way that the political gets thought around terms of play or resistant play or whatever is just like that just seems insufficient for talking about the, you know, addressing the totality. And that's the problem is when you create something that is a totalizing absolute through and through system that is, you know, in, in the atomic structure of daily life, it becomes pretty hard to disavow or move beyond it. Um, and I think the, the good, uh, you know, the good follow up to gameplay mode is what are other forms of gameplay modes that um, interrupt or, or destroy or move beyond and I, I still don't think we really have that book, uh, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. I think we have books that are about are detouring around it. I think Christopher Patterson's book is a really good example of kind of detouring around that problem and working within it and, and showing how resistant life can be under these systems. Um, but those systems still exist and they're still doing things and they're still controlling the vast majority of kind of human technical life. And so how do you get beyond it? There's got to be a way to do it. History happens, right? Um, so... You know, maybe that's a thing we're thinking about. Maybe that could be you, dear listener. Um, unless you have anything else to say, Michael, we're going to take it on out. No, take it away, Cameron. Hey, you can go to twitter.com slash range touch to see everything that we're up to. If you enjoy the show and you want to support it and you want to support our reading of books and talking about them and giving big, long elaborations of what they are like. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to support the show. The links are down in the description below this episode. We don't yet know what next month's book is. Is that correct? Uh, you have not discussed it with me. So unless you are uh, giving me unilateral control here. No, we don't. You, I'll give you unilateral control if you got something in on the in the old noggin for you. Well, I actually don't. I was just looking at our list. But I what I realize is like, I don't know where we are in our patterning. Believe it or not, we have kind of like a rhythm to this show. And I do not remember off the top of my head, like the last couple books that we've done to know what the next good fit is going to be. Well, you know, we do we we're in wildcard territory. We have. Not yeah, I was thinking we're, we're overdue for a wild card. Yeah. You want to pick a wild card real quick? <clears throat> want to talk about okay. it. Okay, let's see. Let's look at some. Well, what are our wild cards? What do we got here? This is too much about video games. This is too much about video games. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, we could do what we've threatened to do for a good long time and finally cover uh, Ranciere. Let's do that. Okay. Ignorant schoolmaster, lock we're, and load. We're doing it. We're doing we're, it. We're this making it happen. It. It's the spooky month. The scariest <laughs> month of all when you read Ranciere. 
Um, actually, this is a really good follow-up because Ranciere is actually a in that kind of Euro tradition that we were just talking about, European theory tradition, uh, of someone who looks at extremely totalizing structures and says, isn't it weird how uh, people, uh, you know, how factory workers in the most brutalizing conditions all turned into philosophers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that an interesting thing? Who are all hated capitalism? So we're going to do that. Let's look at the Ignorant Schoolmaster, which is about how education can happen in a world where uh, people can't be educated, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where they don't have the basic tools to be educated. And th- if that sounds a little bit weird to you, I promise you the book is even weirder than that. Um, so... We'll dig into that. Um, I've spent a lot of time in my life reading Ron Sierra. I'll help you, uh, dear uh, uh, listener, get through it. And I think Michael's also read a bit of Ron Sierra, so we can, mm-hmm. we'll can we be able to run you through it. We'll be back in a month with that. Michael, you want to take us out? Until next time, the social is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs>